Welcome to the Danger Room, a place to prepare for the opponents you are yet to face. We discuss strategy and how to level up your game in Marvel Crisis Protocol. We will have our Xavier Protocol segment, some hot takes discussing something new and shiny, and our main topic of the week. We would like to begin by thanking you, the listener, for giving us your time to listen to our opinions of the game. On the podcast, we have Jacob, Sploosh, and myself, Dizzard. So we're going to begin, as always, going over our hot takes, and we're going to be talking about Ant-Man this week and our thoughts on him. We're going to start with Jacob, because I know Jacob has a lot of thoughts on Ant-Man. Yeah, um, so I was pretty down on Wasp, uh, you might remember, from episode one. Um, And so you might be thinking that I'm going to think uh, similarly that I'm down on Ant-Man. But man, there's something on Ant-Man's card that really jumped out at me. Uh, and that is when he's small, he can place within range three for no cost. That is just ridiculously good. Uh, it's uh, the blah. I'm, I almost <laughs> run out of words. To Didn't say. we discuss this too? Like, there's no zeros other than like husband and wife. Yeah, the, it's really rare to get a zero cost ability. Um, and that means that it can't be shushed as well, just like as an extra thing, because they're not spending any power on it unless they've got, um, uh, yeah, unless unless there's like Loki hanging around or Root got got on him. Even then, I'm not convinced it will work because you're not paying the power to activate the ability. You're paying the power before you activate the ability because of the wording of Root and Loki. So maybe even that doesn't work. But yeah, hitch a ride, place character within uh, range three of its current position. The superpower can only be used once per turn, and that's only on the tiny form of Ant-Man. So for a start, it's a really cool uh, ability where he's you know, hitching a ride on Hawkeye's arrow or on Black Widow's bullet or or even on just like Anthony. Um, so it's, a, it's an awesome ability just from a, a, a kind of a fluff standpoint. Mm-hmm. But... It's just ridiculous. Um, so he's only a small mover when he's tiny, but he can then do a massive attack and then go big again and move again. It's oh, just, if you haven't already thought about it, put a model on a table and see just what a range three place, even with a short move on the tiny character, can do because he just gets all kinds of places. Not only that, it's a place. Place is the most. Uh, mobile of all the movements um it kind of goes advance then uh so push advance uh place place you can go up and down elevations you can um go to places that you can't see because there's no line of sight there um yeah you can bamf through buildings potentially it's yeah such a strong it's the strongest movement mechanic you can have um, and again, we've been talking about D scenarios a lot because you know, Web Warrior's been playing them a lot. This gives him the ability to move around from those different points on those D scenarios much more easily, mm-hmm. uh, whilst also benefiting from stealth while he's tiny so that he can be far away and not be um, subject to any attacks from people unless they get really close to him. So they need to be as mobile as he, as he is in order to get that attacks on him. So where do you where do you think he fits in as far as like affiliations though? Because it's like I think that his hitch ride is really neat, but it's like I kind of see him as my objective runner if I'm going to be using him. I don't see him doing much else until I get power for like the bullet amp barrage. I think that's kind of cool. Well, um, that's that's where I see him. I see him um, doing amazing things in Cabal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I really like him because uh, in Cabal he can 
Uh, turn one, he changes size, becomes tiny, and he's got stealth to try and protect him. Turn two, he can place for free because of Hitch a Ride. He can then um, use Ant Size Uppercut, uh, which is a build. So it's a, it's a sixth. It's only range one is the big downside of it. But it's a six dice builder. So this is like what the same kind of attack you're getting off a five threat character, but on a three threat character. Um, it's a builder. So he gains power equal to damage dealt. And then he gets another one from Cabal if he deals damage as well and then turns normal. Placing him wasn't an action, so he's still got another action. He can then do his beam three, seven dice, bullet ant barrage, maybe. If he's done two damage with that six dice attack, he's then got one from the beginning of the turn, one from Cabal, and two from the attack, the builder from the attack. And he's now got the four power he needs to pull off that bullet ant barrage. So just that's ridiculous, having a six dice single target attack and then a seven dice beam three attack. Uh, which then gives uh, poison and stun on damage. Y- yeah, just that yeah. power yeah. prevention. So first round, first action of round two, having him go and do that, and then say, right, for the rest of the game, or until I daze you, these characters are poisoned and stunned, as well as having taken this huge amount of dice damage. Uh, it, that feels like a really strong play to me. Yeah, his big, his, his big strength is the six dice attack. It's why you would take him, right? Um, I, yeah, I'm just playing around with him right now. Uh, he's not as fast as a long mover with two long moves compared to two mediums and like a one range, but it's pretty comparable. It's like a base and a half distance difference. Uh-huh. It's a pretty, you know, he's he's almost a long mover. Um, I definitely, I, I agree with you. I like this character more than Wasp, but I feel like with Wasp, I'm kind of like, eh, I, I, I don't really get 100% what she's trying to do, but I think Ant-Man is much more obvious and pretty cool. Uh, having, he, like, so for example, the fact that Hitcherite is on Tiny is awesome because I definitely get the sense he wants to be Tiny, uh, especially when he's just standing around. And he has the ability to uh, turn Tiny if someone attacks him. So even if he's like left not tiny, it's okay if someone attacks him. Uh, but the dream is you get two six dice attacks off. I don't think it's going to happen that often though. If your opponent's playing pretty decently, uh, the the range one is is quite a weakness. Uh, any character, <laughs> if you think about it, right? Any almost every character, if not every character other than Ant Man, has a range two attack, and so with a range two attack, you can kind of zone him out um it is possible to do you know a body like a change size into a hitch a ride and then kind of leap into that one again and then get him with a six dice the problem with that is then you can't switch back to get the other six dice attack so that that leads into what you mentioned about cabal which i thought i think is pretty true in that i think to really uh get full ant-man destruction you got to be run- hitting him with the bullet ant barrage Mm-hmm. If you could, if you could pull that off, uh, you've really kind of unlocked his his murder potential. That puts you at what thirteen dice, yeah, seven and six. Uh, and that ant barrage is also a beam attack, which is just crazy. Um, so yeah, you could get that up to even more absurdity. You could get that to twenty dice, right? Because you get let's say two people with the beam for fourteen, and you add six to that. That's the that's living the dream right there. 
He's also all of his attacks are physical, so he's another great Doom Prophecy target. You get Doom Prophecy, and then you get that beam, and you're doing a, a ten dice beam attack. That's pretty good. And yeah. he's got stealth, so that he's maybe not uh, taking as much uh, in the way of attacks from his Doomed Prophecy. The the downside of the Doomed Prophecy, he's got a bit of a defense mechanism built in there. So I, I'm curious. I haven't looked into it. Uh... Has it been said whether or not your opponent or you controls the dropping of the tokens for objectives when you change size? I don't think anything officially has been said, but the theory is that the opponent drops the token. Yeah, that's certainly my reading of it. Yeah, that's that was my understanding of it. It kind of like... Uh, like it's also before you transform, I believe. Uh, so you, yep, you yeah, like transforms. Transform, yeah. Drop it. Yep. So um, that so, hinders it quite a bit because you're not only range two away from it, but potentially like further. <laughs> so, um, but remember, when you transform, you get to place one. So right, that... but it, in a realistic scenario, you're like, let's say, trying to run away from your opponent. So you transform. They put the thing like two away from where you're going, and then you transform, and you now you're even further away. I mean, that's just a, in my mind a realistic circumstance. Um. Well, let's let's think about it like this. Let's say you've got an extract and someone's chasing you and you want to punch them and then run away. You change size for one. You then ant-sized uppercut to go back, um, probably generating a power, which you can then use to pick it up. But when you transform back, you can place yourself range one plus your base size. You should be able to get um, to within one. Yeah, you should, you'll be able to get within one uh, of the token wherever they've placed it. As long as you can hmm. your base. That's fascinating. So, a little bit of mind games with where your opponent places it in their prediction of what you plan on doing after. But that then, yeah, you've cute. still got an action. Yeah. So I think he can play the extract game a bit. I've kind of revised that slightly from what we talked about Wasp. I've thought about that a bit more. Um, but what he's got definitely over Wasp is his damage dealing, which is where I thought Wasp wanted to go because she's hasn't got great kits for secure or um, okay kits for its extracts but damage dealing was where i saw this kind of this shape change dropping extracts but not having throws or uh character throws or pushes that's that's where i felt they would fit and i feel like i like ant-man a whole lot more than i like wasp i i agree i I think that Ant-Man is better than Wasp. I'm still not completely sold on him. Like, I think the whole thing is neat. Um, but it just, it kind of just plays into stuff that I don't personally play because I don't play Cabal. And I do think he's an excellent choice for Cabal. But I don't really, I don't see Avengers really helping him out at all. Like, all of his stuff is one cost or zero. Oh, yeah. No. So He gets no benefit from being an Avenger apart from uh, if he, have we had it confirmed he's Avengers affiliated? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think it was confirmed. Uh, okay, it, it makes so sense, maybe though. he gets to assemble. Maybe he gets to assemble. That's true. Um, I was just like in my head, I'm trying to wrap around like where I'd want to put him in Cabal's like the only place that really makes sense. I kind of want to try him in Defenders just because getting that bullet amp barrage with a Mystic or an Energy Attack would be pretty cool. Um, yeah, I can see that, but you're going to struggle struggle with the power there because you yeah. then need five power. Um, but putting uh, Hex as well as Poison and Stun, that would be pretty sweet. Well, not that, but getting Hex on multiple targets with the Beam 3. I just did a little test of the movement templates, and, and you're actually right. Like, So if he starts just outside of one, which is realistic, 
uh, he can, um, I mean, theoretically, and, and actually, I'm just realizing you could save your little bullet jump thing too, or hitch a ride. Um, yep. So that's even crazy, right? So if your opponent places the token in some absurd place, you can just like, haha, man, I'll, I'll get that no matter where you put it. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah. that being said, you so you could do um, like a transform into range one, do your like six dice attack, then transform out of that automatically, and then without even needing the hitch the ride, yeah, yeah. And so let's see, I was in one, and yeah, yeah. So you're with you're just within one, which is where you'd place yourself. Then you come out of the one towards the objective, and you reach it. So. Yep. Yeah, and with Cabal getting the extra power, you realistically would get the extra power to pick up the objective and then have power left over to switch back into your, your ant form or whatever. Unfortunately, that means you'd drop it if you did that, and that's where it gets a little sketchy. Uh, but still can be holding it. <laughs> uh, so, so it is a little bit of a weakness because he really wants to be small when he's getting attacked for the rerolls. But then he can uh, yeah, he can do that reactively, can't he? he can switch into small. Yeah, it's just then, you drop then... the token. Yeah. So but even also, if they don't wound you, you're, you're dropping the token again. It also comes, like, yeah, he doesn't have the greatest defensive stats, like, are average and slightly below average with the two. Um, but it's, like, you can decide, like, hey, this guy's not hit me twice. I'll try and take the first hit, and then if he tries to hit me again... Like if you're trying to like really get that objective point, you can you kind of have that option to just okay, well now I'm gonna make it a lot harder. Um, it just comes out to taking that risk or not. So yeah, I I don't know. I overall though, I gotta say I might not buy Ammon right now. I'm always willing to change my mind. I've there's a few characters I ended up coming back to, and this might happen to me with him. But right now, just a, a three cost beater. There's a lot of competition right now in that market, and. Mm. Oh, he's so fun. Uh, the thematically, the teleporting thing is absolutely cool. The fact that you made it uh, uh, me aware of the fact he can grab the objective, that feels more thematic to me. Like he, just hypothetically, he's carrying like some mystical wand of magic voodoo, and he. I just picture he throws the thing in the air, shrinks, beats up this guy with some mega uppercut, and then gets bigger again and grabs it before it hit the ground. Like. Like they really nailed it with this character as far mm -hmm. as theme. Uh and that's really cool. I just for all the cuteness, he his offensive I don't know, lack of rerolls, the range one is a little finicky with his hits. And you definitely are rewarded for pulling it off, but I just don't know if I feel like working that hard. And then he's kind of like a niche character in that for all the cuteness, it's still awkward that maybe you want him to hold like a citizen or something or a hammer and I'd hate for him to like come to a situation where he's dropping an objective and then I lose a VP because of it and then maybe lose a close game. So then realistically, he probably is just doing 10 dice attacks, which I mean, that's not bad. It's it's just is that like better than other three cost kind of beater characters? Eh, I don't know. It's probably break even or worse than like say Valk or Zemo. Oh, we've seen um, the panels play for Daredevil. He looks like a real beater. Yeah, I'm just for the cost, he's definitely like in competition. Like he's in the running. That's a better way of saying it. He's in the running with like a Valk or a Zemo. Uh yeah, and you, maybe you're not I'm just wrong. The room for taking him, are you? Yeah. It's why I mentioned the bullet ant barrage. I feel like if somebody cracks the code on bullet ant barrage, or maybe I just when I actually play him, 
I am doing more bullet ant barrages than I expected, then I think, oh, okay, yeah, this is the dice pool I was looking for. You know? <laughs> so, um, and also worth noting, I think you're super right about Cabal, just because those the beam will give you power. He needs power so bad. Like, you can't leave him with no power. Uh, he doesn't need mm. a ton of it, but he, maybe he does. I mean, you want to keep doing more barrages. You always want to have at least one at the end of your turn for activation to keep shrinking. Um, so yeah, I'll tell you who he yeah. reminds me a little bit of, actually, in a weird way. He's like a close combat Star-Lord, where he's got this attack that's fine, but what you really want to be doing is his big spender attack as often as you can. Yeah, except Hitcher Ride's insane. <laughs> yes, it's brilliant. If, if you haven't taken that on board, you're ready. Go, go and put put a model on the table and move it around with range three places. Range three places. Oh, it's just yeah. Try it. Yep, I, that's about it on him. Yeah, I think unconvinced, but good. So now on to everyone's favorite segment of the show, Xavier Protocols. Jacob, what do you have for us today? So I'm going to pick up something that I wrote about a while ago in my Dice Math 101 article, and that's something I get asked quite a lot, which is if you've got a choice of attacks against a, a, a different defense, so a really good example here is like Iron Man, who's got a four dice energy attack or a five dice physical attack. Let's imagine you're attacking into someone with four physical and three energy. Are you better off taking the four energy into three defense or the five physical into four defense? Uh, so this comes up quite a lot, and when you look just at damage expectations, it always works out better to take one more dice against one more defense. Now, if you think about that for a minute, that makes sense. If you just think an extra dice has got a four out of eight chance of rolling a hit on an attack, but it's only got a three out of eight chance of rolling a block on defense. So those adding a dice to both pools favors the attacker. Um, the only time when that isn't true is if they are getting two extra defense. So someone like Venom, if you're thinking about switching from energy to physical attack, but you only get one more dice compared to their two extra dice, that's when it's not worth it. So just a little insight there into if you're considering your attack types. Now, all of that, of course, ignores any kind of power generation. So if, you're, if one of those is a builder attack, that standard strike attack that generates power equal to damage dealt, that might influence your decision a bit more. But if you're just expecting damage, then that's a useful thing to have in your back pocket as a rule of thumb. So but that kind of goes in today where we talk about a lot of matchups. Um, so we thought we'd go over our thoughts on deployment and things to consider while doing so. Then we narrow down some main topics to consider when you're placing your models. And we'll begin with Jacob. What's the big idea for deployment? So when you're playing a game of Crisis Protocol, one of the most influential things that dictates how that game plays out is the shape of the secure crisis. So if you take something like a B-shape for infinity formulas, you get two corridors that the battle tends to happen in along those wide secures. So you have two fields of battle, if you like. So it's almost like there's two mini battles going on. And which characters you send to which side are hugely impactful. Um, because they might find that they've got someone who they go really well against or someone who's a really strong answer to them. And that's what we mean when we're talking about having a matchup. So we're looking at a small area of the battlefield and we're saying, which characters am I sending there against which of your characters? And what you're trying to do to try and engineer uh, a win in the game is trying to engineer good matchups for you whenever possible. 
So then, it's like saying good matchup, like let's go into that a little bit. Like, what do you consider a good matchup? Can we get like a specific example of that? So the classic example would be Black Panther into any kind of Mystic Attacker. So someone like Modok or Hela or even Loki, uh, their Mystic Attacks mean that Black Panther is not only is it targeting a weaker defense, but he doesn't get any of his Vibranium superpowers that grant him blanks or extra dice on his injured side. So having someone who can ignore a particular ability. Another great example would be Venom going into Spider-Man, uh, either Miles Morales or Peter Parker, because Venom will deny them those re-rolls so that mm -hmm. you're negating some of their key tech, which is designed to help keep that character alive. Yeah, and then that, that also kind of comes into, like, if we're looking at the re-rolls, like, in that specific matchup, Venom's also amazing in the MODOK in most cases because of he's denying that defensive tech that MODOK has, even though he still gets to roll wilds. I think it's really important to hit home uh, all the different reasons to have one character go against another character because um, it's it's all relevant. And so I, just some examples I, I have off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. um, you guys mentioned the attack types, which is huge, and that imp implies defense as well. Uh, there's also characters that are just not very good against push attacks, which is uh, relevant for characters like Shuri. Uh, mostly Shuri. I don't. E I don't know if you guys can think of any other characters that are huge on pushing. I know, obviously, um, Black Panther pushes people really well, but generally, he's not pushing them out of a, a swing back. Uh, I think increasingly, Doctor Strange, we're going to see doing lots of push stuff. That's a great example, yeah, right? So, so, so characters that don't like to be pushed. A good example to me is uh, Black Dwarf. Uh, Venom hates it a bit. Uh, Modok is not a fan. Of being pushed around Green. just Corvus. characters without charge yeah corvus oh good example yeah corvus doesn't like it either uh you know so you got these characters that are vulnerable to pushes so obviously if you're playing some of the characters we just mentioned most of them are very expensive characters so uh, you don't want uh, your expensive character to be kind of knocked around by a cheaper character so you're that you got to keep that in mind when you're thinking of the matchup either if you're the guy pushing or you're the guy getting pushed so uh Sorry, uh, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about, though. Like, if you look at it, like, I didn't actually ever think about that before, but pretty much all the characters that hate being pushed are about a fourth threat or above. That could be easily taken out of a pivotal spot of the play, play area just by a simple push, and it completely upsets the game state. And you shouldn't limit it to just pushes. Throws can be really yeah. effective. You don't always have to throw for damage. More often than not, I'll be throwing for positioning. So yeah, that, that, that's this is interesting because it's like you have like all these expensive characters that can be completely displaced by a simple push or a throw or something on or a placement, but then like all of your cheaper characters, your twos and your threes, are typically like your lawn movers or they have that extra little bit of movement that the throw or the push doesn't impact them as much. Yeah, I mean, there's some two drops that don't love to be pushed around either, but they're only two costers, so the yeah loss of resources isn't too high uh that might be something we need to discuss in a future episode is how many resources are in this game because we are going to get into resources a little bit in this just in the future of this discussion um but i'll come back to that uh just another couple examples real quick uh of matchups uh location of terrain and and actually before i even mention that i should mention the likely range an attack will be at so, for example, if 
someone plays like a Hawkeye or something, and it kind of seems obvious they're going to play Hawkeye passively, uh, on some deployments, I may want to have a stealth character on the opposite side of them. Uh, that way, Hawkeye can't get some like cheap shots on those characters. Uh, I mean, you guys can, you know, there's a few stealth characters in this game. Widow, two versions, and then you've got Miles that just came out. And, you know, so you're taking away the advantage they would get on you uh, by having stealth. But for stealth to be relevant, it, the range of attack is relevant, and the location of the objectives is relevant to ranges. And then coming back to what I just mentioned, the terrain size, once you've got this idea in your head of, like, where the attack will be, you need to think about where the terrain is also. And the biggest example everyone's probably thinking about is Thor. If you know Thor's coming in on the left side of the board, you see a giant size four truck that is also on the left side of the board, and it's right in the same exact spot that most likely Thor will be when he's attacking your characters. All of that is relevant to range, right? Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, um, completely. Right, so... This is also huge for just deciding which side of the board you want to play on. You need to have in your head at least a general guess as to where you want fights to be and maybe flipping the board around or if you're playing in person, just deciding on, I want to play on the left side of the board. And it is funny too, because when you play in a real situation with your friends or whatever, uh, people tend to be a little more lazy about which board side they're going to be playing on on, on the and the internet playing in a simulator, it's much easier to just play around and flip the board and, and visualize things. Uh, and it is a challenge. I know I personally can be a little lazy with this and just say, ah, whatever, my stuff I already unpacked, I'm over here, I'm going to play on this side. But if you really, really want to win, uh, you got to take all these things into consideration. Uh, little tips there, just generally, when you're playing in person, I'd recommend rolling for priority before you unpack your stuff. Because... <laughs> then at least you know which who's choosing table edge and they can make a decision about if they want to be lazy or if they want to consider it before they start unpacking. Uh, and I've gone to tournaments in other games where I was really wanting to be in a certain side and I my opponent chose to stay on their disadvantaged side uh, just because they unpacked their stuff. And in my head, I was just kind of like, ha, ah, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so don't, don't be that guy. Uh, it, it is part of developing good habits. And I, I know I need to develop this habit better in going forward to make sure to get the dice rolled out real quick and don't get too comfortable. I didn't the only other thing that uh, sprung to mind is sort of weight of numbers. So some teams are now starting to field sort of seven or eight wide teams and saying, well, I'm going to send three characters to mob this secure point so that even if you take some of them out i'm still going to be controlling that secure just by weight of numbers so something else to think about potentially is uh have you got enough numbers or enough control to deal with if they're flooding one particular area of the board yeah dealing with like so for example uh maybe vision has a beam attack and he can handle sure. swarms better than other characters and and in general, it's true that with matchups, you have to consider the cost of your characters versus the cost of their characters. If you can get a three-cost character to kill a five-cost character, uh, you're obviously doing really well. And uh, that's that's definitely, you know, it's tricky to 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 put that into words as to like strengths and weaknesses. And like in theory, a three-cost probably shouldn't be always killing five-cost characters. But I've definitely done it myself, where I've had three costers take out you know a five cost character 
They um, don't even have to take them out. If you can have Shuri spend all game pushing Modok back twice, that's a fantastic sure. use of Shuri and really frustrates the effectiveness of Modok. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier about the pushes. But yeah, I mean, that's part of... Exactly. It, it all comes down to resources and, and the cost of your character is a resource that you have to use and your opponent is using as well. So you're trying to gain any advantage. If your cheaper character is keeping someone at bay, probably means you have an advantage on the other side of the board somewhere else with the cost of your characters. So hopefully you're using that well. Well, well, I think another thing that comes into it is like we experienced this in our game that we played last week of having all of like basically my whole entire team on one side completely changed how you wanted to deploy. Uh, that's actually a good segue to maybe actually jumping into deployment. So I think that there's a value to characters that maybe isn't obvious when you first look at a character. And that value is flexibility or mobility. Uh, so, for example, in the game we had played recently, we ended up playing uh, game one of season three to, against each other, unfortunately. And uh, it was a very good game. But one weakness I had noticed in your roster is I think you had three characters that moved short. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you did, right? Because you had yeah, Venom, Venom Modok, uh, and... and Dwarf. Yep. So you struggled with repositioning or changing sort of sides of the board. You know, we talked, uh, Jacob did a good job. He was describing how the game kind of comes down to like two lanes. And a lot of games kind of go that way. The exception is these maps like Gamma Shelter. And I know there's some new maps coming out or not new maps, but, you know, new objectives mm -hmm. that are using that formation. So yes, that's going to become more popular. Um, however, if you're not playing, say, Gamma Shelters, and you're probably playing roughly two lanes in, in this game. So the ability to change lanes or change your mind or be flexible in, in that. Uh, for example, I had this amazing play where I had a Baron Zemo on the very far right side of the board, and I needed him to pick up a like a scroll objective uh the two point vp objective across the entire opposite side of the board like touching like the, what was it um the console on the very opposite side and the way i was able to pull that off is doing a charge into his uh steel rush and for people that don't remember steel rush gives you a free medium advance after the attack so i used my attack to give me a third movement and then I actually did another attack after that, another steel rush. So I actually moved four times to get to the objective. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I can't say enough about how much I enjoy playing Baron Zemo, but how many characters have that much ability to reposition and use uh, their speed as an advantage? I think we're going to get on to sort of redeployment a bit later. Um, I think yeah. when I'm looking at deployment, Matchups are constantly in my mind. I'm constantly trying to find matchups that work for me. But one of the things you, you face whenever you're deploying is you've got to put someone down first. So where it ties into what you were just saying is characters like Zemo can be really good first deployment pieces because you're not committing very much of your, of your plan. 
uh, if you put them maybe just sort of off center one side, they can very you know, like. Well, maybe I'm going down this left hand side, but I've got the long move and I've got the ability to just go over to the right or go straight down your throat if I want to. Having someone who is relatively low stakes, so not maybe not very high threat, but who has good mobility as a first deployment piece that's not tipping your hand as to where your important power pieces are going to go. That's something that I'm always thinking about when I'm uh, deploying my, my pieces. Something central, but it's got the ability to go broadly anywhere. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, is when you're first setting your pieces down, pick, like, like again, going back to our game, is I think my first placement was Doc Ock, because he's not extremely pivotal to my game plan for that game and i was using him as well he's my three-pointer who's going to be trying to get this objective away from the main fight is what i was expecting um so i use just just like you said like i use the piece who isn't as pivotal to the overall game plan and yeah he doesn't have that much mobility but he had enough ability to kind of juke a deployment um which definitely above average you know yeah large base and wall crawler that's above average mobility though yeah Right. So, okay, then getting into actually deploying. There are some people who tend to make lists that are, say, four characters, and they have a premeditated idea in their head of going, you know, left with two characters and right with two other characters. And in an example like Thor and Loki, where they're doing like some kind of drop off combo, maybe even using sibling rivalry, if someone drops Thor or Loki, it would probably be pretty obvious if they're playing those tactic cards that they're going to play the other character. So they're giving mm -hmm. you information. So this gets weird when maybe they go first with uh, placing their character or you are going first. So now if you go first, you don't have that information, right? So you have to go in with zero information. So then maybe your goal is to, I don't know, maybe you're playing, let's say, uh, Celestial Hammers, right? And you're not sure which hammer you can get or how they're going to deploy that may put in pressure on you to not take a hammer. So let's just use Baron Zemo as an example, but it could be any long-moving character. There is a way, uh, and I don't have exact measurements for you, but I don't think you have to be that exact. But anyone could just grab, you know, put out the table and do a little bit of measuring. But there are places you could put Baron Zemo, or let's say Proxima, and they could actually reach either hammer on the sides from one position. So maybe if you're going first and you don't want to give away to your opponent, maybe even which hammer you want to focus on, uh, you could start with placing a long mover like that. Or maybe you just play Cabal and you have Red Skull, and you want to just put Red Skull in the middle of the board, which gives them mostly no information at all, because one of the most common plays for Red Skull is to use his, what is it called, Mastery of the Cube. Mm -hmm. uh, Mastery of the Cube is a range 4 ability. So if you put Red Skull in the middle, you still have range 4 radius, so range 4 in both directions, uh, to use his cube. And then you can decide who to cube, where to cube, like where do you put the person that's going to be cubed, that can all be kept secret. And this is really important. It shouldn't be undervalued, the information you gather here. Uh, you know, Anytime you're playing any game, you should try to gain an edge over your opponent, even if it's very minor. So 
giving them deployment information isn't in your best interest. Mm. So early on, you should consider things like this, like having the long mover or having a character like Red Skull, or it could even be like a, a throwaway two-coster, even though I think even throwing a two-coster down could give information away. I think if you have like someone like Okoye and you just throw them on like a left or right side, that can signal to the opponent that that's going to be the side you don't try as hard on, and you might be pushing a little with more your more expensive characters on another side. Mm -hmm. uh, however, you can also, uh, if you're playing like objectives that are more back, uh, like the serums, there is places you could put a medium moving character to also do the same thing that I described with the hammers, where you could just double move into position to to basically stay back and and do very little. To, to score a VP. I kind of have a question about like what you were talking about there, because you're kind of talking about how your tactics cards and your roster, your team selection and your deployment itself can really kind of project your overall game plan. Do you think there's a way that you can actually mask what you're trying to do overall? Some lists can't do it. I mean, when you some lists, you're just sort of owning up to what you do and that's what you do. I think some people can be a little more sneaky with it. like. Let's say you're playing a four, uh, four characters and they're all kind of beaters. Uh, for example, the Thor Loki plus whatever. And uh, maybe what you could do is just to play all those characters in the center of the board and play very passively on turn one. And then uh, put the sort of pressure on the opponent to decide on something and then allow you to maybe change your mind. I've, I, I got to tell you, I've definitely, and I maybe you guys have had the similar experience, but... I leave myself open to decisions, but often I'm leaning towards a direction. So, for example, I'm leaning towards sending something very threatening to the left side, let's say. Mm -hmm. But there are times where it only takes my opponent doing like one or two things in turn on turn one, and I completely change my mind. I'm like, oh, oh, okay, I see. Maybe he did something I didn't expect, or or whatever, you know. He or he did something to throw me off, uh, and that will cause me to kind of change my mind. And having the flexibility to change your mind is huge. Nothing will make you feel worse than deciding on going left and then being so deep into the commitment that you can't change your mind. Like, and I, I don't know. I've had situations where I've seen my opponents maybe accidentally uh, change their mind or, or not reach an objective they're trying to get to because they didn't account for like a piece of terrain being in their way. Uh, I've seen opponents accidentally not put their drop-off character within range two and so I, that actually leads to another point i'd like to I, for me personally when i'm doing turn zero type stuff or i'm deciding these deployments i prefer to have at least a basic idea of where every single character is going to go before i even place one of them mm -hmm. uh this comes up for me a lot because of Red Skull and Modoc. Uh, what ends up happening is if I don't plan on where Modoc's going to go, I may accidentally put Red Skull like a little too close to like a car or something, and then I accidentally don't leave enough room for Modoc. And maybe I could just put Modoc like I don't know, let's say range two elsewhere. But that range two elsewhere may completely throw off my range control for the next turn, or maybe even turn two, and so. Having an idea of what you're actually trying to do as a whole is, is super important. 
to making sure you place the first character correctly. You know, you might, some people, you just, you're not thinking about it and you just place someone down and then realize afterwards that you made a kind of a horrible mistake. I've seen it all the time and even kind of high level tournament play, I've seen people completely whiff on their, their drop off because yeah. they didn't measure it correctly. Yeah, I think drop yeah. off is one of the biggest ones because you, if you're trying to get that drop off off of like your first activations, your round one stuff, if you're not within that range two little bubble, it completely messes up. Like, let's say, let's, I played a game where I had green goblins, gonna drop off Venom and completely messed up my green goblins' efficiency because he didn't have the power that he should have had. He didn't uh, get a chance to throw a pumpkin bomb because I ended up having to move him twice instead of being able to attack. Um, it just completely messes up where you're going with it. Right. I wanted so, to just go uh, back to your first point, though, Sploosh, where you were talking about being in the middle and that giving you lots of ability to react. Um, if you take that to its logical conclusion, then you're kind of, you might be thinking, well, shall I always go in the middle? And I wanted to point out that that does come with a cost. And the cost you pay for deploying all your guys in the middle is that you're seeding more board space. You can't get as far forward. So that matters for if you wanted to, for example, threaten uh, going and picking up an opponent's cube or uh, evacuee. If you want to get deep into their side of the board and do something on their side of the board that is going to fundamentally impact the scoring math, then you have a lot less opportunity to do that if you're deploying centrally. For those kind of plays to work, you need those characters to be broadly lined up with the objectives that they're going to be focusing on. Uh, equally, if you want to be aggressive and you want to sort of position yourself on the far side of the central uh, line of objectives, so on the on the D or the uh, C, so all across the middle scenarios, if you want to end up with your characters as far forward, projecting threat forward or um, into their their sort of safe space, you can't do that as easily if you're starting off in the middle. Just with the trigonometry, by having to move across at an angle over to the left or the right, you're not going to project as far forward across the board. Uh, so D is the uh, what? The diamond. One, the uh, D is portals. Oh, the diamond shape. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I will say on my counterpoint on the cubes is cubes is a little bit of a risky play if you're going for someone else's side. And and honestly, if you are playing sort of a steal a cube plan, it's probably because your opponent misdeployed, which kind of is the reason we're having this discussion in the first place. Uh, you can build a team which is its primary focus is go steal a cube. Like Asgard plays that really nicely. Someone like Hella is a great option for it. It comes down to those those bold plays that you want to try and go yeah. for. If, it, if you, but you're, I feel like, like you said, you're kind of building your list to do that. But yeah, sometimes yeah, you have you're to be mindful of it. I mean, if someone's playing Hella and and it's like a cubes or something, you definitely need to be mindful, and that might even be under matchup and like, it's not yeah. It's not but, directly uh, a one-to-one -one matchup, but it definitely is something you need to think about as to where are they going to play Hella, and if they do play Hella aggressively, out, not in the middle, it it might signal to you that something's up. But uh, just just flip it around. If I'm playing against you on cubes and you're all central, normally my first couple of activations are I'm going to go and secure my cubes. If you're not threatening them, you're not dictating to me what my first activations have to be, and I can change my order of activations to something potentially different. 
Um, I mean, maybe I'm not following. I, I guess the thing is, like, if you're playing a character, like, Hell is a good example, right? Of like a character that can run up and steal cubes. I, I am seeing Black Panther is another one, mm-hmm. right? Am, am I missing any others that like are huge examples of cube uh, bandit? Corvus, Corvus is decent. Okay, so if you're playing that strategy where you want to try to steal a cube and you don't have to, like, even if you're planning on stealing a cube, you can always abort mission, right? Which is the audible I was kind of describing earlier. Yeah. 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 But if you are even threatening the cube, you might be playing mind games, right? Uh, That's exactly my point. By going central, you're not threatening my cubes. You're not forcing me to protect my cube by going and picking them up with my first two activations. And it might be my style versus other people's style. And, you know, you don't want to, Hold things I say sure. as like no, biblical, I'm, I'm, you know. But I, I personally well, would I was... never try to steal a cube because I think it's a gamble, and I don't like the idea of my character being on the that far away from the team. You know, um, if, I if like that character having... dies, I would feel nervous about that. Yeah, uh, no, I, I like having the option of doing it, and sometimes I'll mention it to my opponent. Aren't you know Panther can get up there and get that cube, <laughs> um, and no, then so... that can impact. Yeah, this no, so you... then they're more likely to then go and do that and that is more predictable for me so i can map out what their their round is going to look like so what you're saying is you play mind games <laughs> well uh, so... i just mention things and sometimes they're relevant <laughs> yeah so i actually respect the mind games way more than actually taking the cube so in fact if like taking the cube was like a three would be like a three out of ten for me but the mind games would be like a 10 out of 10 and i would actually <laughs> enjoy that way more and the reason is not so much in this game, but I've done it. I've actually played games where I will put my faster characters on the board early, uh, and I'll put them on... Well, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about being able to steal the hammers. If you put the character... I don't know how to explain it, really. I wish I could give a good visual. But let's just say, like, I don't know, let's say 40% or so from the corner of the board, if you place, like, Baranzimo or Proxima, that could look to the untrained eye as if me, as if I'm signaling on a D formation that I'm mm-hmm. going to go left or right. But to me, that actually signals nothing. Um, however, if you do that enough, where you let's say I place Red Skull maybe kind of near-ish that net that character I already placed, and then my opponent puts like Thor on a, a pretty aggressive-looking opposite corner of me, right? What I've done is I've created the illusion that I'm going hard on that side, and these are the characters I plan on using for it. And then the opponent moves his character up to that objective, thinking, here I am, come come get me. And then I just deploy or move all my characters completely to the other side of the board. Um, which, you know, it's just a style of mine, but it goes into like, I value the mind games way more than the actual mm. aggression and you, the risk i don't want to take gambles but i'm happy to pretend i'm going to take gambles if that makes sense up on, yeah you're hitting on two points which I, I certainly want to come on to first one that i want to pick up on is the um i talked about how i like to have a character who i'm deploying first i also think really carefully about which character almost more carefully about which character i want to deploy last um there are some characters who so the, the general rule of thumb is your most expensive is probably the one you, if you're not sure, save your five, six, seven threat character for last because there's such a big commitment of resources that you, you want to make sure you've got as much information as possible before you're committing that resource where you want it to go. 
But there are some exceptions to that. Like I will uh, typically want to deploy Killmonger last so that I can line him up against a good usurp the throne target. Mm -hmm. So if I've got Modok and Killmonger in a list, Modok probably gets deployed before Killmonger unless my opponent has already deployed their highest threat character. So I know where my Killmonger's going to be aiming at. I think another good example to tie into that would be like Shuri, because like I like to put Shuri last just because I want to know who she's going to be trying to push the most out of and line them up with that person. So I like to throw Shuri in there towards the end of my deployment. Yeah, I, I think she's definitely towards the end. Um, depending on your team setup, she might well be last, yeah. Yeah, I got to say, I didn't mean to bring this up, but I, I feel like it's unavoidable, is that there are a lot of resources in this game that I don't think people really like quantify in their head. Uh, for example, you brought up Usurp the Throne, right? That takes one of your five tactic cards. If you can counter deploy the someone playing Usurp by putting your expensive character opposite side Killmonger, you are down resources immediately for two reasons. One, you don't use Usurp, so you've wasted one of five tactic cards. So is what, 20% of your tactic cards were wasted. Or you have to move your character with actions, and you only get so many actions per game. If the average game only goes, what, say four turns? Mm -hmm. That doesn't give you that many actions, right? That's what, eight actions for, for Killmonger? So if he spends like two, maybe even three of those actions just crossing the board to get to, like, say, Thor, uh, then you kind of won either way, right? Because you've just made his forecast character waste like a turn and a half. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's many other resources. There's, uh, let's see, there's oh, there's turns. Turns are a resource. If you win on turn six, uh, and maybe you've only scored eight VP the whole game, uh, that's fine, because you only get so many turns, right? Or you only can get 16 VPs to win, so maybe your opponent's about to beat you on the next turn, like completely board wipe you, but you got 16 VPs, so they don't get to go to turn six. That's a resource as well. Uh, and it it gets interesting the more you think about how many resources are in this game. Uh, another thing I, it's not exactly related, but I think needs to be brought up is when people have this idea of putting two characters on each side of the board and this two lane thing, I do respect that as a concept in the game, but I will just add that Unlike a D deployment, you actually don't need to own the left and the right side of the board. You actually really need to own like the left or the right, and then probably your like quote unquote home point, right? If your opponent does the exact same thing, you're tied. Tying is not losing. Tying is a tie. And maybe at some point you need to break that tie. But often I find what happens in this game is people overplay their hand and try to own two sides of the board so they will try to do left right and their home point mm -hmm. do you see where this is going and why that's a mistake yes yeah, so you spread yep. yourself way too thin and you can't handle either side of the board because you're too thin or you just have too much going on that you can't properly like answer the questions being asked you and I, you say too thin but that's actually not totally accurate what ends up happening is one side is probably fine and then the other side is too thin and so if you're someone like me i can smell the blood on the side that's <laughs> the thin side and i'll just go kill you on the thin side and then now 
I, I, I'm still maybe tying you, but now you're like weakened your army. And then now you just go and t attack another thin side. Do you follow that? Uh, and I think that yeah. ties in with um, next week's episode. Stay tuned, listeners. <laughs> yeah, and that is something I, I don't I hate to spoil things, but like the other thing that needs to be talked about is um, the concept of um, it's a wide known thing that people can Google if they want to get like a hot take on it. But there's this idea of who's the beatdown, and it's this idea of who's pressured to do something and who's not. Um, and so we're talking about the deployment and matchups. Really, uh, it's our focus, obviously. However, I don't think everyone has to um, really do this. Uh, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about Gamma. If you don't even want to bother playing this mind game, if you just want to sort of throw your guys down and throw them into your opponent, just pick Gamma Shelter. And it, there's not as much counter to play. I mean, it's just everyone's going down one lane. <laughs> And all your guys are going to crash into each other. And, you know, how you activate and all these other parts of skill of the game are going to come into play. But the deployment isn't as relevant. You're pretty much saying, I don't care about that, which is fine, right? But the other thing is, maybe you're playing a list with like six or seven characters. I think we touched on this earlier. But most likely, a list like that is super redundant. It's full of like these kind of beefy attack above their weight class characters, and there's so many of them. Also, when you're playing six or seven characters, there's no concept of like, uh, I don't know, keep your secrets, I guess. But you do have the advantage of you have so many characters that you're probably going to place at least one of them after your opponent has done everything. So, for example, maybe one of your characters is Rocket Raccoon, and you're waiting for your opponent to play a Venom, right? You get to wait as long as you want because you're so many characters. That being said, uh, the the player playing all those characters, they kind of probably don't even need to think that hard because so many of their characters are redundant. I'll give you an example, like Drax and um, uh, Groot. For the most part, they're like these beefy, tanky characters. They're not super fast, but they can take hits. And... Um, they they slightly do the job differently, but mostly their job is just like being like sort of meat to send onto VP. So it's likely that um, maybe you put Drax on one side and Groot on the opposite side. Now, relevant is Groot dies to energy, so maybe you want to play around with holding Groot to the end. But that being said, you can just kind of just throw a bunch of stuff like three characters on the left, three characters on the right, and like split the game into this two sides. And you have so many characters that um, trying to smell a weakness that maybe isn't as easy for your opponent because there's just so much going on on both sides. Uh, in that case, that's, I mean, if you're not, basically you're identifying that your opponent doesn't care as much about deployment as you do. And maybe for all the mind games, you might get very little advantage because you're getting like, say, an advantage on like this kind of little three or two cost character but that's not really in the scope of the game as much a resource as you would like it to be. Did you have any, anything to add to that? I think you made an interesting point there about um, comparing with uh, what your opponent's doing. And I think that plays in a lot uh, to when I'm deploying and I'm saying, right, I'd quite like to try and get this matchup. Okay. Maybe I haven't got priority. That particularly happens more often then uh, when your opponent is deploying pieces first and they're going okay they've i want to get this character into that character and i want to get 
this third character into the, into this other fourth character. And it can get to a point where you've both got two pieces left to deploy and they've got to put down one of their two and then you can go opposite with the one you want and then they're going to put down their last one and you get the two good matchups at the end of the deployment there. But it kind of leads on a bit from what you were saying, but it's another yeah. important thing, I think. Don't, don't be a slave and go, I must deploy this last. Have a kind of a plan. A, a, oh, this is the shape I want. I want this. I want this matchup, and I want this matchup. And then play to that matchup. Don't go. Okay, well, I've I've got to keep this piece to last, even though they've already let's take Killmonger again. They've already put Hulk down over there, right? Well, now I'm fine to put Killmonger opposite Hulk because they've committed their high threat piece. I think that right. I think that specifically yeah. what you're talking about kind of plays into something else you were mentioning earlier, which is that dynamic redeployment. If you want to go into that a little bit, yeah, well, like, I, I can. I would like that. I, I like well, the example you gave is actually pretty cool because Hulk's also not great at changing his mind, right? So it's really safe to play Killmonger across from Hulk because Hulk's not gonna like run away from you at any efficiency, <laughs> and even if he tried. He's co it's costing him way more resources than it's costing you to have that Hulk run away. And he's not even going to get away. Like, your Killmonger can outrun him. So, you know, uh, I found that that's, that's, that, was, that goes into the value that I think gets missed in um, flexibility, you know? Uh, if somebody's trying to, like, counterplay a, a long mover, you might be able to punish them with your long mover just by being fast. Mm. Um, so... Dynamic redeployment for me is uh, something I've been experimenting with a lot more recently, especially with Web Warriors. They are great at this. Um, uh, Web Warriors kind of like that D, that diamond extremist shape uh, anyway. And uh, I really like them on that. One of the reasons for that is that they can just go, you've put your five threat, you put your Corvus Glaive with the reality gem over here on the left. Great. He can be on the left. I'm going over here to the right. I'm going to take the, the my close one. I'm going to go to the right, and I'm going to be maybe threatening your home one as well. And Corvus, I can just kind of have that big threat over there and just, just kind of ignore him. So dynamic redeployment is where you've put a piece somewhere, and either you've trying to do a bait and switch, a refused flank, where you say, right, well, I'm just going to move all these pieces over here, and I'm only moving six threat of characters with double moving them and you've got eight threat of character lined up across from them so if you're having to double move your eight threat then i'm up because i'm getting more activations out of higher threat values um so that's one way you can use it another way like i said on this diamond is to then choose which of the which of those cures you're going to ignore and make those be ones with uh impactful characters so they have to make a choice is my impactful character going to sit here and score me victory points or is it going to have to waste actions moving off it either way that's a bad choice and i know sploosh is a big fan of giving people bad choices that they have to make and then waiting for mistakes or capitalizing on whichever of those. Cause then you can just do it again next turn, next turn again, you can go, I'm just going to move these pieces again around and give you that same decision. So that's something I've been seeing with web warriors a lot. Um, but there are other teams that can do it pretty well as well. Black order have it baked in, in a team's tactics card in mothership. Just, you can boop, boop someone over the table and they're suddenly in a completely different position redistributing the threat and bringing pressure where maybe it was there was no threat there before like another good example of this is uh let's talk about like your lawn movers you got like gamora zemo 
Proxima, when I was playing Guardians a lot, I like to throw them in there to do just that. I'd set up my deployment and then zip off to the right side or the left side, whichever side, just completely change up the where my threat was. Um, they had their, they're not very threatening characters as far as like damage output, except for Gamora maybe. Um, but objective threat is more of what they're bringing in that scenario. Mm. A, a great example is let's say you're you've got a Black Panther and you're playing into a Modok. Putting your Black Panther wide rather than centrally positioned, your opponent's got a choice. Do they put their Modok opposite the Black Panther specifically to try and take him out? In which case, Black Panther is a lot faster than Modok and can move away and be impactful somewhere else. Or do they ignore him? In which case, that's a win for you anyway, because now your Black Panther is not being taken out by a Modok. And then it comes back to what we talked about earlier as threatening that objective because a character like Black Panther could go for your opponent's cube or whatever they whatever they have. Sure, yeah, depending uh, on the extract crisis, yeah. Yeah, so it's something to consider as far as like you're essentially providing, what, two to three questions and your character, you know, your opponent only really has one answer. Like they can either, or two, I guess, they can either go forward and hope you continue your path or they can try and predict your movement but it's like it comes down to providing more questions than your opponent can provide answers yeah the only thing i would add to that is and we kind of i've kind of already said it but i think it deserves reiterating is i love your panther example because for both players it's sort of a game of chicken where like you know what they want and you and they know what you want but by giving them by not placing that panther in the corner you are allowing them to make a mistake they might not make a mistake like you might go both of you two turns neither of you makes a mistake everything's exactly the way you expected it to go and everyone positions in the counter deployment they should deploy in and that's fine that's the part of the game then you just unfortunately you have to wait for them to make a mistake maybe on turn two or three but by already thinking of all this stuff on turn zero allowing them to make the mistake is the quickest way to victory and that's really the best you can hope for you just need to it's like you need to tee them up put them in a position where they could make that mistake and then see what happens and that's that's the whole point of this conversation really i mean mm. it, you're trying to get a little bit of an edge and and you know what people too I, this i know this is this doesn't happen to me as much as it used to but i will admit this is a thing that i had to struggle with is I would play these games where I would have this like in my head, like this great plan. And then maybe my opponent took a little long on his turn or something got complicated, maybe a weird question with rules or a dice roll that was weird and threw me off. And then it's my turn and I get so excited and I do something. And then after like or halfway through doing it, I realize I completely just messed up the plan. You know, and I've seen my opponents do this a lot with drop off. I hate to keep bringing that back, but it's funny how how often people mess that up. Where like they'll like move and be like, "Oops!" Like I was supposed to do this, and and then it. And I'm not trying to say like I'm some super player. Like I totally own up to like I've done this before. But there you go. That's a it's an unforced error, you know, and uh, that's a big part of playing games in general, right? So. Mm -hmm that's that's really what we're trying to get at here is like trying to um not just gain information from how your opponent deploys but also not to give away information so have you got any general rules of thumb you like to to 
have as your your rubrics, your kind of standard operating procedures for deployment to try and avoid unforced errors? Hmm, unforced errors, that's tricky. Uh, I don't know, honestly, just practicing a lot. But like mm -hmm. when it comes to tactics cards, I'm a big fan of like putting the card on the board. Like, yep. I wouldn't yep. even be awesome. against putting drop off like practically on top of my Thor. In real life or on a, ta a virtual table, I yeah. I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, when I okay, uh, it's not super relevant for this game, but there is another game I played where I had to do this like action every time, and it was important. I did not forget it, and I used to take the tokens and I would put them on top of the the dials we used. And in this game, I mean, again, I gave a good example, like maybe um, putting like say drop off like practically on top of my character, so literally I couldn't like you know like clipping over their little base, right? Yeah. So literally, I would have range to... rulers. So yeah, before sure. you can do anything with a range ruler, you have to think, oh, drop off. Exactly. Thank you. So little tricks like that would get get you really far, and then eventually, maybe you don't have to do it. Um, but theoretically, if we were playing in real life events, and even if it's for fun or casual, it's still maybe a three round tournament or something. You're gonna get tired. I don't, you know, I don't care who you are, and having little tricks to help you. Why not? Right? Um, it might be. That like you always forget to put bleed on your um, your venom attack. So you take your little bleed token and put it on top of like a uh, a short range thing, or maybe on your range three template because you're gonna measure measure for attack. You know, mm -hmm. uh, do what you got to do. But like little reminders like that is a good trick. Well, I think yeah, uh, that point. You... I was just gonna say like I've seen some people like the way they keep themselves from doing this is I've even seen people carry around a little notebook when they're at tournaments and they have their notes for uh, what they want to like like double check and there's like like high high end competitive stuff where they're keeping notes of everything going on in the game and they're keeping notes of stuff that they don't want to forget like hey don't forget drop off venom round one or don't forget drop off venom round two or hey venom puts bleed on his strike without the wild because that's something i honestly forget all the time um even though i play venom all the time i just i completely i don't know why i just forget about the bleed because it's not everybody just has a, a natural bleed off of a strike without a, a trigger yeah that point you made about getting tired at tournaments that's exactly the reason i asked that question um, because having these these rubrics, these standard things that you always do, um, that can you're absolutely right. That can help prevent you from making unforced errors when you're in a long tournament. Um, and I think deployment's a tricky one, but I think my general rule of thumb is put things more central than you think you need to, unless you have a plan. So, like I talked about the Panther or going to grab an objective, I do think probably being central and having that ability to reposition is more useful more often than not. So if you're in, when in doubt, move them a little bit more centrally. Um, I think a really good example of that is um, on deadly meteors. Rather than lining them up opposite a left meteor, put them halfway between the left and the center. And, rather, and same for the right, don't put them right on the right meteor, put them halfway between the right and the center. Then those characters have got an option of which meteor they go to because, you know, even though you've got four dice, you might flub that meteor roll on that one in the middle that you were banking on as your first activation. Suddenly that's gone down and your whole turn is now thrown into chaos unless you can get another character there. Having that flexibility of having them just a bit more central rather than out wide is, is a good thing generally. 
Yeah, I think we should wrap this up, but I will say the notebook thing, you could combo it, right? So when you're sitting around, maybe waiting for the round to start, you read your notebook and then your notebook says, don't forget drop off. So then <laughs> once you read your notebook, you grab the drop off card and do the trick I mentioned. So it's kind of a reminder for a reminder, you know, and, and developing good habits is definitely something we could probably talk about in the future. But there, yeah. that that goes for way more than just remembering attack this card. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of The Danger Room. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something to level up your next game. You can reach out to us on our Discord, Twitter, or Facebook. The links will be in the description. We have a questions channel on our Discord, so feel free to drop us some questions in there and we'll answer them on the show. Thank you for taking the time and listening to us. If you're liking what you hear, leave a rating or comment or even both. We appreciate any feedback to help us grow and become a better group to bring you the best quality content that we can. See you next time in the Danger Room.